Welcome to the watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. And uh, so we're in this series that is all about moving from I want to I will. That's the type of statement that we could declare at the end of a series like this. We move from I want to I will. And over six weekends, including today, we're going to give you six examples of great opportunities we all have to kind of live out that statement, to make an I will statement. And yet underneath the surface, what does this out series mean? What does the church look like? What does a church member look like? We thought that would be fitting as we start the new season, people are coming back to church. Maybe you're checking out church for the first time in a a while. Um, We thought this would be good information. And we're going to use, like Bucky said, we're going to use the book of Acts. Okay, so the Bible is uh, 66 books. One book composed of 66 books. And this book of Acts has this tremendous history of how the church began. We're going to look specifically at Acts 11, the church in Antioch. And um, so we want to move from I want to I will. And we're going to look at this first century church. Just look at really quickly as a wonderful example. The things that the first century church was worried about. The first Christians. What were they worried about? Were they worried about whose house is going to host church next? Were they worried about the quality of the bread and wine? And who was going to cook? Um, we don't have everything recorded. But one of the things we do have recorded is that one of their first fights was over what? One of their first conflicts was over who's going to take care of the widows. That's the type of mentality that the first century church had. They weren't worried about the bread or the wine or who's going to host or, or who, how are we going to give praise and thanks today? What's the quality of the, the music, whatever it looked like then? They said, hey, we have to figure out, we have a conflict about taking care of the marginalized and who's going to help us get a system to do it? That's the way they thought. Pretty cool, right? There's all kinds of things that this church from the book of Acts can teach us. And that's perfect segue because we get to see that there were pioneers in the first century church. People that went first. They were the first to love, the first to reach, the first to give generously, to serve, and to partner. And, and when we look at Acts 11, it's really cool because it says some. There was some people. We're going to get there in a second. There's some people from Cyrene and Cyprus. All these stories that take place today in what's modern-day Syria and off the coast of northern Africa. There's an island there. And, and, and there's these people that came from there. And yet they were pioneers because they went first in reaching those outside the church. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But before we get to Acts 11, again, get your Bibles out. Go on and get them out right now. Get your phone out. You got the Bible app. Go ahead. You should read this. It's so good to understand how the church began. And it takes place in the book of Acts. And before we get to 11, let's recap. Because most, many Christians, many Bible-believing Christians, if you stopped them on the street and said, okay, well, how did we get here today from 12 obscure disciples to, you know, nearly 1 billion people that associate with the Christian faith. How, what, what happened in between? A lot of people would be uncomfortable with that question. And so it's a great defense of the faith. It's a great explanation to be able to share with someone that story. So I want to back up before we even get to Acts 11. Um, have a look at this, okay? There's a progression of people that pioneered. Before we get to these nameless pioneers or missionaries out of uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, we had a few other people that went first. And it's so cool because it's kind of a progression. It didn't happen overnight. We know the sayings. Rome wasn't built in a day. We didn't get to a billion Christians in a day either. God allows us to be in process. Look at this. If you look at uh, Acts 8, you can flip or pan over really quick to Acts 8. I'm just going to reference it really quick. You have Philip, one of the early church leaders. He's going to the Samaritans. He went to Samaria, the title header says. 
Well, when we read that at face value, we think, oh, cool, just another missionary trip. No, the Sumerians were these half-blood, half-breed, very derogatory. Okay, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, they'd call it the mudbloods. The mudblood, they had mixed ancestry. They were half-Jews and half-whatever else. And this was a, a marginalized, derogatory group to hang out with. Of course, Philip wasn't the first to go. Jesus hung out with this type. But, but Philip went first. It's kind of a concession, right? We're taking baby steps. We'll hang out with half Jews and, and then half Gentile or whatever the rest of their blood makeup is. And then let's see what happens next. What happens next? You jump over to Acts 10. You have Peter. Peter accepts Cornelius, this Roman officer. This did not happen. You don't have Jews consorting with the occupation, the occupiers, the national military occupiers. That was not cool. That was not an everyday occurrence. At this time and place, again, if you're newer to this idea, that's the time of Jesus and his disciples in the new church. It was a Roman occupation of their holy land. They were the enemy. Put it in modern day terms, it would be like if an ISIS or some other radical group or whatever foreign military power that we are not buddies with was forced upon us. Just try and wrap your head around what a modern day example would be. That's what it was like. And Peter's hanging out with this guy. I love this verse. Look at this. This is from Acts 10. I will show you one um, highlight from the passages before we get to uh, 11. But here's what it says. Peter, this is Peter to the Romans. Uh, Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to even associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. That's Peter, the main guy, the head pastor, the first pope, if you really must, okay? The rock, the guy who the church is supposed to be built off. That's what Catholics believe, by the way. If there's any recovering Catholics in the room, any, any Catholics? Got some Catholics? Love you. Praise God for you. Bless your heart. That's what they call Peter, right? He's the first pope, all right? The first head of the church. So what? He has a dream. He's the leader. So what? He has a dream, and God's telling him there's no such thing as unclean and clean, pure and impure, insider, outsider. There's no such thing anymore. I'm going to help you, Peter. Lead us into the next thing. So what? Just because he's a leader, he has that idea, doesn't mean it's going to be received well. And, and in fact, you look at Acts 11, right above our passage today, you can get all the way to Acts 11. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the headquarters, the HQ of the church, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles? You even ate with them? What are you doing, Peter? This whole thing's going down, man. You can't hang out with those people. Don't you know any better? That's his reception when he comes back to Jerusalem. This is all setting the stage for where we're going to go in the second half of Acts 11. Upon his return, they could have thrown him out. And he recaps this whole story about how God spoke to him in a dream and gave him a vision. No such thing as impure and pure, clean and unclean. We are called to be one body, one people with these so-called outsiders. And then finally we get here. This is the precursor. This is how we arrived at Acts 11. Someone has to go first, but there's, a, there's baby steps that have been happening here. You look at the church in Antioch now. Here we are, all right? This is where the believers were first called Christians. Do you want to know why you're here today? You really want to know why you're here? How did you get here and what's it really about? Let's look at this right here. And I have one big idea. You guys ready for the main point? You guys want the big idea? This is what it is. Okay, you're ready. You waited. You're patient. Saying I will aligns my will with God's will. Saying, I will, 
aligns my will with God's will. You're going to say it with me on this third one. Ready? Saying, I will aligns my will with God's will. And you guys got louder as I got quieter. That was awesome. You nailed it. Way to go. That's our big idea. When we move from the lens of me to we, anything is possible. When we move from mine, me, what I want, to they, them, those people out there, amazing things can happen. How enduring, we're going to learn in the text what this one point means, how enduring our own personal discomfort can be about something so much bigger than ourselves. When we get outside of ourselves, God's plan, his very plan. How many of us have sat in a room and thought, just God, it'd be really cool if we could get your will right now. Go ahead, show us your will. But God, your will. Like it's this mystery that we can never pinpoint. Is that totally true? I don't know. Moving from I want to I will is integral to the gospel message, actually, and to the mission of the church. Moving from from I want to I will actually honors the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid. How many times can I tell you that in my discomfort and making it about me, most often the most common, most quick fix for that is saying, wow, did he die so that I could quibble over that? That I could obsess over me and what I want, my desires and my discomfort? Is that what the ultimate sacrifice was for? Saying I will will align my will with God's will. So back to this, this question I think about. How do we go out? whole series is called Out. Okay, cool, Ben. Well, what does it mean? How do we bridge? How do we build a bridge out to the culture today? Well, I would suggest now we're going to look here. Acts 11, verse 19. We're going to get into it, the actual text for this weekend. And there's an answer right out of the gates. One sure way to, bridge a build, to, to, to build a bridge is to be constantly under fire and afraid for your life. That's one surefire way. Check it out. This is what verse 19 says. Verse 19, it says uh, this, coming to you right now. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. Really quick heads up. Many of us are familiar with what He's alluding to, but um, Stephen was an early leader in the church. Uh, He's martyred. He's stoned for presenting his testimony of Jesus. And uh, it's kind of an established thing, as ironic and paradoxical as it is, that what happened in the early church is anytime there was persecution, there was then scattering, and there was explosive church growth. People came under fire, and they naturally scattered, and God did amazing things through, through the spread of the believers. The believers, like I said, this is an occupation. Stephen, Jesus goes, Stephen dies, and Christians are being killed left and right. They're being thrown into the Colosseum with lions. They're being stoned. They're being set on fire. They're being hung on a cross. This is the real-life times of the Christians in this, in this century. And so when I think about that, when I read that, they're scattered. It sounds pretty uncomfortable to me. Um, it reminds me, in our staff time uh, Tuesday, we were going over this passage, and we were talking about these tremendous people, you know, these first-century believers they must have been fueled with so much zeal, and uh, they must have been so well-trained, and uh, they were awesome missionaries, and just look at what they did and how the church exploded in growth. And then finally, there was a, a voice of reason that said, um, guys, maybe they just thought to themselves, we're going to die. We should probably move. We should probably get going. It's not safe here anymore. We should probably just go. 
And I love that he took that realistic kind of human lens for a second because um, the application for me is that what can God do with our discomfort? What can he do with our discomfort? Or what happens, uh, conversely, if we resist that and then we hide out or we stay put or we don't go, what happens if we just commit to doing what we're always used to? I'm going to get there in a second, but that last line, they preached only, they preached only to the Jews. What happens if we just did what we were always used to? And I guarantee that I had that same temptation. Instead of going, instead of speaking up, when I got to that new location, they could have hid. They could have gone underground. They could have been insulated and isolated. And yet they had a defining moment decision to make. And God used it tremendously. Look at, look at verse 18, Jews only. Jews only, but, it, but, this is one of the biggest conjunctions of all time, but they preach the word of God only to Jews. A lot hangs on that conjunction. That, that conjunction right there is the difference between being an obscure, uh, offshoot, so-called Messiah, and dying out with just the Jews alone, and being something that becomes one billion believers today. That's a huge conjunction right there. But we need help today. What what does a Jews-only mentality look like for us today? Because a Jews-only mentality is I want. That's an I want mentality. That's, that's, That's hanging back in the comfort zone of I want. And I'm wondering, do we stop short today as well? Can you imagine? Imagine these guys going around, the first church leaders, and they're out in the streets, uh, countrymen of, uh, of uh, Syria and Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. They're out there in Antioch, and they're doing a census. Someone walks by, and they ask, hey, are you Jewish? Are you a Jew? Hey, are you Jewish? Come over here. Let's talk about Jesus. Yeah, let's talk about Jesus. We're good. Let's talk about Jesus. No, you're not? Okay, move along. Move along. You're good. We're set. We're, we're good here. Imagine if that's what they did. We wouldn't be here today. You and I wouldn't be here today. But I want to know, uh, their language back then was heathen, Gentile, Greek, outsider. How do we do this today? Who have we claimed inadvertently, because it's never ostensibly, it's never you know, our proclamation on the website to leave certain people out, but inadvertently, who are some of those groups that we've left out? Maybe we've suggested uh, we don't need to reach young people. We don't need to reach the next generation. We don't, we don't need to reach newlyweds. I talking to a, a guy who's worked for churches and now has a, a company that, that contracts out with dozens of churches. And he was telling me, he was texting me, saying, Ben, do you know how few churches are, are offering that for, for couples? Counseling, premarital, and then to be the officiant for their wedding. Do you know how, how, how huge a need that is just in Costa Mesa, but in Orange County? And that's going to be that, that wedding's going to live or die by the standards and the commitment and the, and the encouragement that a, a great man or woman of faith lays out for them. So, what are the values that we carry in order to chase after that next generation? Maybe we don't need to reach, this is inadvertently, maybe we don't need to reach those that identify as LGBTQ, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And again, think in, inadvertently how have we done that? Would someone, Watermark is one of the most welcoming churches in the whole world. One of the hats that I wear is I I sit with new guests to the church. I love it. I love it because they get to tell me an honest opinion of how their experience was. And they say, without fail, last 10 people I sat with, last 10 for 10 people said, 
When I was at the door, someone greeted me. When I was at the sanctuary, someone came after me. During the meet and greet time, someone wanted to know not just my name. They wanted to know who I was and where I was from and what's going on. Man, it felt so good to be a part of a community, an authentic community. And yet if there was a couple who was a man and a man or a woman and a woman sitting together holding hands, would that rattle our cage so much so that we couldn't extend that same depth of hospitality? I don't know. I get that it's a challenge, and even we as as believers who have been trained to think a certain way need time to process, but how might we act, and what inadvertent things might we do to let that person be in process? Not have it all figured out, day one, but to let that person be in process. Uh, Maybe we say, we don't need to reach unchurched folks. We can do service a certain way, and do programs a certain way, and do a message a certain way, such that if an unchurched person was here, who cares if they understand it or not? We could do that as a, as, a, as a church staff and leadership, inadvertently, not knowing that we're driving someone away. But we want to switch to an I will man mentality, called into those levels of discomfort. And every one of those examples, with expansion comes some kind of persecution. What does that look like for you and for me and for us as a corporate church? See, moving to I will is a vision. It's a frame of mind. It's a way of doing church. It has practical handles for how we go forth and do this thing. And, and, and that's the thing to remember and to take away from the section. Moving from I want to I will means an openness to uncomfortable things. As we are working towards aligning our will with God's, my will becomes our will and we can see his will on earth as it is in heaven. That can be a real thing. Not just an aspirational, prayerful thing to see his will on earth as it is in heaven. As we're working towards that alignment, we may be called in for uncomfortable things. In fact, there were people that thought that way. Even 2,000 years ago, there were these pioneers. There were these nameless few. Who were they? What can we discern about them? What was going on? Look at verse 20. We continue on in verse 20. This is what it says. However, some, it's the only name given, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. Notice that we don't know who these trendsetters were. We don't know who they were. And won't that tell you something about what we're called into? That sometimes we don't get the credit. Sometimes we can remain nameless. How often do we say inside the church as church leaders or church attenders, man, I'm just, I'm not seeing the fruit. I'm not seeing the fruit. I'm not seeing the outcome. I'm not, saying, I'm not seeing the win. I'm not seeing how God has really worked life change in this person that I'm coaching. Or I'm not seeing life change into the church. And there's no practical, tangible outcome or or fruit that we say that that we've experienced or that we've felt. And just because it doesn't have the name or it doesn't have our name associated to the outcome and the way it looks doesn't fit our expectation of how it looks, we feel let down. Amazing how that might be true. Now let's look. Since we don't have names, let's talk about the city for a second. Okay, this is one of my favorite parts. We'll get into some of the history, some of the geography. And the city of Antioch, and this city was the, one of the, the third greatest. It was the third greatest next to Rome and Alexandria. They were incredibly diverse uh, metropolitan cities, a melting pot of all these folks coming together. And there was, just like so many other cities and so many times before it, there was uh, these idols or gods that they worshipped. And this city was no different. They had Daphne. They had Daphne. And there was even a note about when they walked into the city, is, or they had a saying, they had a common saying that we translate into our English, that approximates to uh, the morals of Daphne. The morals of Daphne, they would say, in the city. It makes me think about um, what happens here stays here, right? 
the Vegas terminology. What happens here stays here. But I'm thinking to myself, what are the sayings that need to be knocked down in our daily lives? As we move towards alignment with God's will, what are the sayings that need to be knocked down and reestablished? How about this one? This is just one that I thought of. Uh, Well, some people, Ben, some people are beyond saving. Some people are just beyond saving. I've said it. Anyone else here ever said it? Some people are just beyond saving. Maybe people don't use the same terms, but how many times I've sat with a couple, or usually at this rate, it's just husband or wife, because marriage is on the rocks, and they're working on separation, or they're working towards divorce. Or how many times have I sat with a parent, and they're talking about their kid who's grown now, teenage, or young adult level, and their mentality is just checking out, because I can't have the uncomfortable conversation. This marriage is beyond saving. He's grown up. He's made up his mind. He won't listen. He doesn't even want to hear my voice anymore. So we roll over. And in a different terms and in a different way, we say, well, this person's beyond saving. These trendsetters, you guys, these pioneers, these nameless missionaries, they said, I will enter into the difficult unknown. And they set their feet to that steadfast and anchored to the fact that they were entering into the difficult unknown. They moved from I want to I will to those, them, they out there. And it's a wild type of mentality. Let's pause again, make it practical for us in the 21st century. It's a wild mentality to say, just speaking corporately about the church, how should the church look out? How does the church look? What does the church look like? When we think about that application, it's a crazy thing for you to say to us, church leaders, and say, you know what, Ben, Bucky, um, let's do things to reach those who are not currently here. Let's do some things to reach those who are not currently here. As opposed to, let's do things for those of us who are already here and already invested and already giving and already volunteering. It's about moving from I want to I will. And it's about learning. That's not just our cute idea as staff. That's not just my, um, you know, wrong interpretation into the text. If you look at scripture, that's that's a part of knowing what the Bible says about the body of Christ. Let's give another example. Maybe these nameless folks just understood and took seriously what Jesus was about. What Jesus was doing. And there's another wonderful example about how Paul outlines this. If you look at Philippians 2. Wonderful passage. I'm going to read through it. I'm not going to preach a whole different message. I'm just going to read through it because I love the reminder to have the attitude of Christ. It says in Philippians 2, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What was that attitude that he carried? He's going to go on to tell us. Though he was God He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. Gross, gross. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died even a criminal's death on a cross. Though he didn't deserve a single insult that was slung at him, though all of the things were inaccurate and the accounts against him were folly, he took that on for our sake. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it means to be a gospel-oriented church. It means moving from I want to I will, and that means having the attitude of Christ. That means having the attitude of Christ. Now, let's look at um, 
The last verse, 21. Okay, this is the last big idea that I want to leave you with. Beautiful things are possible. When we move from I want to I will, and we're aligning our will with God, beautiful, wonderful things are possible. That's the language of verse 21. Look at verse 21. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. The power of the Lord was with them. His approval, his hand was on them, and a large number of these Gentiles believe and churn to the Lord. What a wonderful result. And that was the story then. Is that what we see today? Here in the Western North American church? Let's look at some of the statistics. This is from the Public Religion Research Institute, the PRRI, okay? You can look it up. Go ahead, take some time, get your phone out right now. You, can, you don't take my word for it. Check it out. The PRRI, go ahead and look at it. Um, but these are some of the statistics. These are just a third of the 15-point the bullets that they had about some of the trends in America. Let's look at some of these things, okay? The first one is this. Pretty tiny, I'll read it to you. Over the past decade, evangelical Protestants have declined from 23% to 17% of Americans. In 76, it was 8 out of 10. Every 8 out of 10 people would have said, I identify, I affiliate as a Protestant, a Christian. During the same period, the proportion of religiously unaffiliated, the nuns, so-called, so those people, if you did census material or asked them to fill out a piece of paper, they'd check none or non-affiliated or I'm not a part of anything, nothing. They'd rather pick nothing than say, put their name next to Jesus. Nothing. Has grown. The same time, 16 to 24%, like a flip-flop, almost an exact flip-flop. It goes on. It's coming, I promise you. The median age of evangelical Protestants is now 55. And the median age of the religiously unaffiliated, the nuns, is 37. While 26% of seniors are evangelicals, only 8% of Americans uh, younger than 30 claim this identity. 8% of folks. 8% of folks younger than 30 8% of folks younger than 30 claim the same thing, the same affiliation. There's one more. Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists are all far younger than Christian groups. At least one-third of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists are under the age of 30. Roughly one-third of religious and affiliated Americans are also under 30. Now, uh, while this, this whole message so far to this point has been about maybe why we're losing and some of the things that we can be about to combat that and to come back ferociously with the gospel and the will of God, uh, that's not my focus at this time. What I want to say about the statistics is uh, now we are a church on the ropes and in the margins. We are a church on the ropes and in the margins. Are you ready for how I'm going to flip this on its head? Are you ready to know where I'm going next? What happened to that first century church when it was persecuted, scattered, and marginalized? What happened to that church on the ropes? Explosive growth. Verse 21. A great number of Gentiles came to be saved. And the Lord was with them and upon them. And he blessed it and gave his approval. They didn't turn inward. They didn't become isolated. They weren't insulated. What does that have to do exactly with I want to I will? You want to know what the context of this research was? I clicked on a news article link that led me to the full statistics, but the news article link was talking about the moral majority, 
The moral majority, which was this phenomenon that gained steam in the, during the 80s, uh, Jerry Falwell and a, and a kind of a pol- political um, organization around um, the right and, and Republicans and, and, and Christians. There was an al- alignment there. And the mentality was, uh, I want a president, I want a political action committee, even I want a government to protect the things that I want. Now, for a second, please do not hear what I'm not saying. We should vote the way our Jesus following permits us to vote. Absolutely. And we should desire those things of our government. There's a way to have, be active and to be involved in the community and to care. Wonderful things. Wonderful things. But we're here as the church to suggest this. The way of the kingdom is not necessarily the way of government. The kingdom values and kingdom orientation says, I will not I want to depend on someone else to do it for me or to get involved or be mobilized. It says I will because I have the power and I have a voice and I'm a part of a community that can create change. That's the way the kingdom orientation works. And that's the mentality of the gospel. So what do you do when you're facing exile? What do you do when you're facing exile? Cultural exile statistical exile. What do we do, church? We go where we've never gone before. We go where we're never gone before. What did these church members do? They were pioneers. They took the attitude of Christ. They aligned their will with God's will. And there was tremendous power and growth in that place. There was growth in number. And there was growth in flourishing. Please hear us. As much as we have a heart to reach the next generation and grow this place numerically, do not mistake it. We do have that agenda. We would love to see some people say yes to Jesus. We would love to see these these chairs overflow. We would love to see the people you're covering with prayer, audaciously asking God to sit next to you. We'd love to see that. We will not hide that. We would love to see that numerical growth. The other part of it is, though, we would love to see the internal flourishing of people's hearts and minds transformed by the gospel. That's a type of growth too, isn't it? And we want to see that here at Watermark. We want to see that the way we saw in the first century church. So as the band comes up, I'll finish with this quick story, and then, and then we'll, we'll prepare ourselves for communion. Um, you may think in some of these statistics, as we look at them, and we have this finishing point here, moving from I want to I will, produces those results that we've been talking about, even against the ropes, even in exile culturally. And you may think from some of those statistics, oh, Ben, of course you're going to wax on about 30-somethings, about millennials, a stinking 18-year-olds, 18 to 35-year-olds. I, I think that's tremendous. I still don't understand how um, the lumping happens. But it's wonderful because I love being in the same category as 18-year-olds because they're going to change the world. Okay? They are. But as, as you read that and you hear me, and yes, I'm never going to lay that mantle down. I'm going to talk about the next generation until it gets really old. I'm going to do that. But when you look at that on the screen and you think, oh, you know, man, maybe it's just about young people. And you're making up your plans right now to go find the other church down the street because you're like, oh, the rest of the changes. The, the offering box and the paint and the darkness in the room, we ain't seen nothing yet. Let's make our plans. As your mind is going down that road, let me just tell you an encouraging story. Uh, last week, we hosted this um, volunteer group meeting, and we were talking about greeters and ushers. And one of them, a gal who uh, has been serving since weeks after she said yes to Jesus and said yes to the church, said, um, Ben, you know what I think is so cool? Um, after living years in spiritual drift and casual encounters with God and a Catholic church maybe once or twice a year, 
and all that that was. Um, here I am as a 60-year-old when I came to Watermark and said yes to Jesus. And this community has enriched me beyond belief. Saying yes to this community in the way that I serve. Saying yes to this community in the way that I give. Saying yes to the community in the way that I said, yeah, I'm 60, but the last chapter could be the greatest one yet. As a 60-year-old, what a beautiful testimony. What a story. We're, we're not partial. We don't have a bias about how old they are. We want to reach all people. We want to present all people with this decision point, with this good news, with this kingdom way of living. And so the, I want to challenge us. The band's going to play this song, and you get up at any point, and you join us for communion at the tables. But how is God calling you into discomfort? What does that look like for you? Maybe you know the exact example in, in, the, in the conversation you need to have with the family member, the move you need to make at work. How is he calling you into discomfort where growth is on the other side of that? How is God calling you to be nameless? How is he calling you to not take credit this time and say, your will be done, God. So long as your kingdom goes forth, my, my name doesn't need to even be on it. How is he calling you to be nameless in this season? And lastly, because this is a out, this series is about us as a, as, a, as a community, as a corporate body. How is God, how might he be calling you into the local church to, to be a part of growing in power and in number? It says in verse 21, how is he calling you to be a part of that directly? Using all that you are to submit that towards what's happening here locally at Watermark. Those are some questions, some challenges I'd like to put before us. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for these people that are here in September trying to figure out, God, what's your will for my life and what's my next step, God, and and what role can I play in it? Thank you, Father, for willing hearts and minds to even sit here and listen to us wax on about what that could look like. Jesus, I pray that all the things that are of me would just fall to the wayside right now. The things that were of your spirit, the same spirit that was evident, uh, available, uh, moving powerfully 2,000 years ago in the city of Antioch, God, is here and available and willing today, God. Let us grab it. Let us reach for it, Jesus, your spirit, so that we could move into these opportunities of discomfort, of letting you take the credit and seeing what kind of growth and power is on the other side. Thank you for what you're doing at Watermark, Jesus. Thank you for these people, God. As we come to the table, speak to us in tremendous ways, specifically, tangibly, God, about what our role is to play. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.